If you speak the truth, have a foot in the stirrup. Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Sea Realm Podcast. I am your host, KMO, and this is episode number 580. Always a Reader, with guest Lex Pelger, prepared for release onto the World Wide Web on Saturday, May 14th, 2022. In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to share a conversation that I recorded just recently with Lex Pelger. Most of a conversation. Of course, I'll be saving some of the juicier bits for the Sea Realm Vault audience. But you're going to get a big, generous helping of that conversation for free right here on this podcast. Now, Lex is somebody who's been on this podcast before, but not recently. So if the name isn't ringing any bells, he describes himself as a drug writer and a scientist. And until recently, um, I kind of thought that the scientist part was maybe affected or aspirational. But no, Lex really did study biochemistry and molecular biology at Boston University. So scientist he is. I first met Lex in 2012, and I don't know if this is where we met, but my first memory of him that I can easily bring to mind is talking to him outside of the theater where we saw Michael Pope is gay for pay. Michael Pope also has been a guest on this podcast. But again, like Lex, not anytime recently. So it was good to hear Lex's voice again. This was very much a throwback to my New York City days. So here's my most recent conversation with Lex Pelger. You're listening to the Sea Realm Podcast. C stands for consciousness. All right. It's thinking about it. All right. You're live. I'm live. <laughs> hey, everybody. I am talking to Lex Pelger for the first time in a long time. Damn. How long has it been? What do you think, Lex? Years. We were in that apartment in New York. So I don't know, seven, eight years ago. Moved out of there in very early 2016. So Okay. Okay. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cool. So I'm in Arkansas and you are in France. Mm -hmm. Say mm -hmm. more about Bordeaux. that. Um, oh. It's been nice. My wife is French. And so we just wanted to get close to the grandparents and have the kids learn the language. So we've been here for two years now. Um, we weren't fleeing the country or anything. We just wanted to to be uh, get the kids in her home country. So my French is getting to be like not completely incomprehensible. Um, <laughs> but the French are very nice about it, though, because I, they're so proud about how hard the language is. Like they know I'm trying. Everyone's like, oh, it, you know, très difficile, huh? It's like, yeah, it's difficult. And they kind of have a gleam in their eye like, yeah, it's <laughs> hard. Right. But they also give you a lot of, you know, credit because they know it's just not an easy one. Right. Yeah. Well, I took uh, a half a semester of French in junior high school, so uh, I'm, <laughs> of course, quite fluent. <laughs> <laughs> it does help, though. Yeah. Uh, all right. And last uh, last time I saw you in the flesh, anyway, uh, child count was zero. You have how many now? Yeah, I got two kids, uh, four-year-old yeah. Sophia and uh, 10-month-old Lucy. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just, just fun ages, really fun ages. Yeah. My youngest turns 18 in July. Wow, mazel tov. <laughs> you made it, Papa. Yeah. That's great. Uh, just about over the finish line. You know, okay. of course, they'll be my kids forever. but Yeah, it never really ends. Yeah. But yeah, oh, that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. All right, well, we have one viewer so far, I can tell. Okay. All right, cool. <laughs> Who is it? W yeah. Will they comment? We'll see. All right, and last we talked... Uh, of course, you know, you've been interested in psychedelics since as long as I've known you and um, also marijuana, uh, cannabinoids, uh, research there into and also Moby Dick. You were uh, working on a graphic novel, as I recall, sort of mixing up uh, Moby Dick and your other interests. Where is that? What's the uh, state of that? That's in pretty good shape. Uh, before the first kid came along, I got two of the books published with my illustrator. Um, and so you can see them online at lexpelger.com. Um, and then in between the kids, I got uh, another chapter finished. Um, so I have three books out uh, where it's it for, um, for people listening. It is a 
it's based on Moby Dick because that only that story is giant enough to contain the human story with cannabis. And so I'm going to go into the history of cannabis or all uh, different civilizations and as well as the racist history of the war on drugs is the Captain Ahab side. Uh, but then the real thing that I'm doing differently that you can't read another book about is a really deep dive into the endocannabinoid system. So all of the whales will be cannabinoids swimming around down in the sea. And the more I dive into the metaphor, the more it just keeps on working and working. And uh, that's the only thing that's not out there. You know, there's great uh, books on history of cannabis and how to use it and all that kind of stuff. But there isn't a, a readable per book for a layperson on the endocannabinoid system that doesn't stop at CB1 and CB2 receptors and anandamide and 2AG, the two first known endocannabinoid neurotransmitters. And so there's a lot more than that. And I wanted to tell it in a way that was comprehensible to somebody who was, doesn't know neurochemistry. And so treating the human brain like an ocean and then all of the fish and, and sea creatures and geochemistry moving stuff around, the more I learn about the ocean, the more it really does actually sound like the human brain. Uh, and they're both so mysterious as well. And a lot of the major discoveries happened at the same time, but really, no one would say we understand the ocean and no one would say we understand the brain. And that's part of the fun of these books. So I have the first, so it's based on Moby Dick. So I have the first three books done. That means there's only 133 more chapters to go. Um, but I do have the next seven <laughs> written and I'm going to illustrate them pretty soon, I think. And so hopefully this year, the goal is to get my next seven books out there and then just keep doing this for the next couple of years until I get the whole thing finished. Right on. So uh, I'll just say that one thing I didn't know, which I learned very quickly when I looked at your website, is that you have a podcast. Yeah, yeah. The Lex Files. Uh, yeah, we're in between seasons at the moment, but it's been a really great ride. Uh, some on drugs um, and a good bit on health. Uh, but what really surprisingly came to the fore because of this guy, Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, is starting for me to study the supernormal or the paranormal. And it was something I was always curious about as a scientist. And then I have this this really great I just check out Kripal's work, either an interview I've done with him or anybody. Uh, K-R-I-P-A-L. He's at Rice University. And he's just a really nuanced take at all of the science for things like ESP, telepathy, um, uh, UFOs. And there's just you realize that there's been a science of this before the 20th century. It, what fascinates me is that for things like telepathy, if you take nothing but the data done before 1900, there's more than enough data for any reasonable person to say, oh, this is something that exists. And it's very exciting for me as a scientist because so many parts of science, we're just filling in pieces of the puzzles. But we have a good bit of idea of what's going on for a number of the fields. But with this supernormal stuff, there's something going on and no one has a damned idea how to explain it. But there's so much data. And really, the only way to understand the data is to look at a ton of it. And so I've just ever since uh, I had that interview with Kripal, I've been reading lots and lots of books on that. And I believe that's what my next set of books is going to be about. Once I get done writing about uh, the endocannabinoids, my next series of books is going to be based on some other great book. I don't know, maybe um, Burton's uh, Anatomy of Melancholy. And use that to explain all the science on supernormal. But right now I'm still in research mode. And it's going to be you know, probably five years of research on this, just like it was five years of research on cannabis before I could even write a word. Well, had I known that you had a podcast, I certainly would have listened to a few episodes before we talked. <laughs> so. I will listen yeah. to some episodes before we talk again. Sure, that? sure. No, it's, I'm, I'm proud of the show. It's, a, it's really good. I'm looking forward to getting back to it once I uh, get a little bit more space with uh, the baby possibly sleeping at night. Well, I'm going to uh, I'm going to ape something you've said. Uh, the next time I go a long period without putting out a podcast, I'm going to say, "Yeah, we're between seasons right now." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. I run away. I run 23 episodes a season just because I like oh, okay. that number and it's seen. Yeah, uh, it's a longer break than I expected, but um, yeah, it's just uh, with family stuff. It's where I'm at right now. Gotcha. Well, young kids, they demand a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah. So we're just enjoying the time now. You know, in a couple months, uh, the youngest will be in her creche or her nursery. And all of a sudden, there'll be more time than I know what to do with. And I'll miss this time where I'm with her so much, even if I can't get much as much work done as I want. But, you know. Well, I would like to come back to all topics, um, psychedelic, uh, all medical health oriented. But just for the moment, let's talk about cross-cultural experiences. Tell me something about living in France and uh, viewing the United States from abroad. Hmm, that's an interesting question. Not many people ask me or care. Because, um, <laughs> you know, people are like, oh, the French just look down on us. 
And actually, and that's one interesting part is I think I have a little bit more of an inkling of why the French, you know, they do have a bit of an antipathy to the United States, uh, despite them, you know, helping us to bootstrap getting us started. And uh, but no, you know, most regret it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, they Lafayette, what were you thinking? But, you know, most of the world looks down the United States these days, at least in a little bit. And with the French, in one sense, it seems like it is a little bit like we're cousins that remind them a bit too much of themselves. Uh, it's two countries that really think the world of themselves. The United States isn't even very good about knowing the rest of the world. The French, you know, are. They're up on politics and what's going on everywhere. But they really both kind of suspect deep down that they're the center of the universe and they're one of the pinnacles of what civilization is. And the French are just driven a little bit mad by the Americans because they, you know, they're just like the, the, the country bumpkin cousin kind of thinking the same thing. So I think it's part of the reason that there is that bit of a friction there. That being said, everyone's been incredibly nice to me. And that, fr- that idea of the French being um, rude or, you know, harsh on people is really bullshit for the most part. I mean, if you're in touristy parts of Paris, yes, people aren't particularly polite to you. But that's the same thing for Times Square and any other tourist trap anywhere in the world. In general, French people are very nice and they're very polite. Politeness is a very important feature. And that's, that's quite refreshing. That being said, what's lovely about France is how even it can be. And it's much, much harder to fall very, very far down. But it also means that it's a little bit harder to go very, very up and wild. And my wife and I met in New York and spent a lot of time in New York. And she also spent a lot of time in Paris. And she said, it's easier to be a normal person in Paris than it is in New York. But in Paris, it's harder to be a freak. It's harder to be really far out there. And in New York, you know, it's obviously you know, that's where they go. That's where they breed. We breed. They breed. I'm not sure. I don't think I'm quite a um, freak. So it's that, that even this is really nice. And this dedication to art and culture and enjoying life is something that is quite fascinating to myself who's a very efficient Dutchman, you know, Dutch German from farm country. It's like food is there to be eaten so you can go out in the field and work. And here people just take the time to enjoy life. And so I'm learning a little bit of that. I'm not completely, you know, taking the lesson in all the way. I still like to, to work and get my stuff done. But it's nice to see that, that focus on enjoying your life. It's something kind of new to me, I would say. So did you find that you became a little bit less of a freak when you left New York City? I should never even hint that I was a freak. I'm no freak. You know, I'm a drug writer. So what's powerful, perhaps, about me is that I have good ears and I know a lot of people who are really far out there. You know, I've done stuff that's somewhat interesting in my life, you know, stuff I've enjoyed in my life. But what's been really cool is just being a writer who travels around and sits down with people and finding people just really far out there on whatever their trip is. And if I have any superpower, it's being able to to find them and sit down and just listen and find out what their stories are. And so... For me, you know, I think the best idea about it is if you're the coolest person at the party, this is a lousy party. (laughs) So I am pretty much never the coolest person at the party, but uh, I'll enjoy everybody who's there. Right on. So what's your living situation? Are you uh, in the country? Are you in a town, village? We're 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 in Bordeaux, but it's, you know, a little bit, it's not downtown. We're a little bit farther out. So this is our first house. This is my first room to myself in since... The, the garage I was in in New York uh, five years ago now, six years ago. Um, so it's nice. I have my own room again. And we, are, we have a house with a garden. And we can bike downtown about 20 minutes. And we bike out to the forest about 15. And we did just get a babysit. The baby just got old enough that she can bike around. So all of a sudden, we have both kids on the bike and actually go places instead of the three blocks here, which is not very interesting. So the world just opened up for me big time. So it's not, um, for me, it's, it's quite riveting. So yeah, it's a nice it's it's a nice situation, and it's nice to be close to the grandparents, and you know, slowly picking up the language and appreciating the writing and the the nuances of the of uh, French language. Before you moved to France, you were in Colorado, is that right? Yeah, we were in Boulder. My wife was going to Naropa. Okay, that's why you were in Colorado. I thought perhaps yeah, you were there no. to participate in the uh, the emerging weed industry there. No, no, I color is not really quite my jam. I mean, it was nice, but everyone's so focused on like nature and uh, I don't know, enjoying themselves and stuff. It just wasn't quite for me. So um, I, I miss New York. I would still be I wouldn't have left New York. Now that I have kids, I wouldn't live there right now. But um, New York was my vibe. Uh, color was nice. I mean, for people who like to live outside, it was really cool. 
Boulder is a bit of a weird town just because it used to be a freakville <laughs> and now it's kind of, you know, high end and they still think they're freaks, but they're not. But it was very interesting to see the Europa scene and this you know, Buddhist university. And it was a fun place to walk around and, and have kids. But, you know, it's not a place I'm probably going to live again. I've never lived there. I've had friends who live there and one who still lives there. And uh, yeah, Boulder is not Colorado. It's in Colorado, but it's, yeah. it's not yeah, Colorado. It's true. It's a weird state politically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I live in Arkansas and uh, recreational or what I would consider to be the responsible adult use of marijuana is still illegal. But there's a weed farm right down here at the end of my road. Oh, that's funny. Is it medical? Yeah. It must be. Yeah, or they're just getting away with it. I mean, the cops no, they're they're not just part. getting away with it. It's, it's okay. a, definitely uh, a recognized above board legal operation. There's big trucks. I mean, they had to repave the road because it just wasn't sufficient to handle the traffic of deliveries and things that they need wow. to do. I wonder if it's hemp. Is it? Is it no, high no. THC? It's, it's definitely it's, okay. It's, I'm pretty sure it's medical, and they they deliver around town. They have this white van that drives around and delivers to people, and it has an armed guard because of the weird laws here. You know, they, they can't bank. Everything's got to yeah. be cash. So it's oh, not an man. armored car driving around, but it is, there is an armed person in that car, and they're not the driver. I mean, it's just the full-time guard guarding the weed and guarding the money. Oh, man. Yeah. But it's a situation that, like, I was living in Vermont before this, and I was in Vermont when Vermont legalized adult use. And Vermont did it the way I think is, is proper. They said, you know, every, anybody can grow two plants. Uh, now, what they did that I didn't like was they said, uh, you can grow it, you can carry it, you can use it, but you can't buy or sell it, which is ridiculous because, you know, not everybody's mm. going to grow. And, you know, the Republicans, what few Republicans there are in the Vermont legislature, they were dragging their feet on legalization. But now that it's legal, they're like charging ahead for, yeah, well, now we got to be able to buy and sell it. You know, if it's legal, it's got to be legal to have commerce around it. And Arkansas is taking a different approach where, you know, this is where Walmart is. Uh, they're going to like out of state, big money interests can come in and buy their way into like uh, a ground floor monopoly. So, you know, if you've got millions of dollars of investment capital, yeah, you can grow weed here. But if you just have a seed and some ground and the, the sun, sorry, you're still a criminal. So, yeah, it's pretty ugly. Yeah, yeah. It's it's exactly what you don't want to see. It it's and they talk about the state experiments in the US and a place that things can be learned from. And the worst part is nobody's learning from them. I mean the lessons are now very clearly obvious that focusing on adult use and especially limiting it so that people can't grow their own is just a recipe for disaster because one, it leaves behind all the medical patients who need untaxed, high quality, many ingestion methods for medical cannabis. And also you have this monopoly where you just can't put plants in the ground. And I mean, it's just ridiculous in the land of freedom. Especially when you write law, when your new weed regime means that there's more penalties and more criminality being involved, I mean, you're going in the wrong direction. Exactly. Uh, just like with methamphetamine, most people get charged with producing methamphetamine. It's not that they're getting charged with producing a legal substance. They're getting charged with producing a substance without a license. Methamphetamine is a legal drug. Um, yeah. It's just you need to be a pharmaceutical company to be producing it. And so it's, uh, it's, it's a terrible thing to see that, hap that same thing happening to cannabis when it should just be treated like tomatoes. Well, it's not going to be treated like tomatoes in Arkansas anytime soon. Arkansas is uh, definitely a very retributive justice sort of state. Very law and order, very, you know, hammer, hammer the miscreants mentality. Mm -hmm. And... Um, even though there's money to be made in, in legal weed, you got to be a big money player to be part of that. You know, over by Walmart, there's a sort of secondary little parking lot that's got a dollar store and it's got this, um, it's got a couple empty storefronts and it's, it's got a store that's called the Bearded Gamer where people go to play Magic the Gathering and things like that. And then another store in this little shopping center is the CBD store. You know, you can go in there and you can buy your gummies and you can buy your vape pens and all your different things. Uh, I've never been in there because, well, I just smoke regular old weed. <laughs> you know, it's, it's got CBD yeah. in it with other stuff, too. Uh, but also, I know it's going to be super expensive just because of the, the legal regime around here. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. It makes it tough. I mean, CBD is, is, is such an amazing thing for aging specifically, and it's just too often too expensive, which is especially crazy when you, you would only need a couple of large farms in the center of the country to completely uh, supply the U.S. CBD needs. And because of what's, it's, it's not a hard plant to grow. There's plenty of CBD, but because of the legality and, and everything going on around it, it's way too expensive for what it should be. And it's too bad that people can't be making their own or acquiring a fairly well-tested, inexpensive version when it's just such a great medicine. It's been, it's been the medicine of the people for millennia. It's been a cheap, effective medicine that you can take by putting into alcohol or lots of different ingestion methods. And it's just too bad that it's still so hard to get. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm kind of with you here in France in terms of the, the laws. This, France is the one dragging its feet for everything related to cannabis. They, they're pushing back trying to make CBD illegal, even though it's incredibly popular and it is being sold here, just like it is in the US you know, when it was like quasi-legal. People are still selling it here, but France is trying to make it illegal and trying to make the EU to make it illegal. And they're just starting to talk about the medical cannabis thing. But, you know, meanwhile, Germany is releasing their laws for legal weed next year, uh, the end of no, this this fall. So, I mean, Germany is charging ahead and France is still back being like, oh, we're not even sure if it's a medical product. And it's just, you know, but it's a conservative country. And the, that kind of they ran Mesmer out of town. Uh, they're certainly going to do the same thing to cannabis. Well, so. it was also France that led the charge in making absinthe illegal. That's right. <laughs> Could be, yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, I think part of it is just coldly commercial. They don't want uh, competition with wine, really. Yeah, yeah, you definitely hear that. You, I, I used to share office space with with some people who worked in the wine industry, and it was a big fear that it's gonna it's gonna be cutting the profits. Um, and it's and it's true, you know, it is. It's you know, it's a California, the you know, it's it's hit the the alcohol industry hard to have California people be switching to cannabis because it's just you know, it's easier. In general, I was living in Australia when they made absinthe legal. So I went and I got some and I drank it. And what I realized is it's such it's got such high alcohol content that if you were to drink enough to feel any of the effects of the thujun, you're just going to be smashed. You're just going to be drunk yeah. off your ass. So, yeah, you know, yeah. it's basically just green grain alcohol. <laughs> so strong. <laughs> yeah, that's the theory. So that's where the psychedelic effect was coming from. Just huge levels of intoxication. Mm -hmm. mm. That's great. So, you know, when I used to do the C-Realm podcast more often than I do, uh, I talked to a lot of people on a lot of different topics. And, you know, I would talk to them and they would, they would talk about whatever it is they were promoting at the moment, their book, their program, you know, whatever. And then we'd wrap up and I'd say, you know, thanks for appearing, blah, blah, blah. And they'd say goodbye. But then the call doesn't end. That's just the recorded interview that ends. And then we're just talking. And what happened time and again was that I would discover that people who have absolutely nothing to say about psychedelics in their public persona will then, in private conversation, say, oh, yeah, they've been very important to me, you know, in my personal development. Uh, but, you know, they just don't want to talk about it in public. Hmm. And I've discovered that um, there's, there's, quite, <laughs> there's a lot of value to that. Like, uh, I, I find that people who, you know, want to make a public persona out of talking about psychedelics, and I I'm, don't have you in mind as I'm saying this, uh, they run out of things to say that are really worth saying, but, you know, that's now their day job. And so it's kind of like the UFO experiencer who has told their story, you know, time and again at all the different conferences, and people who are interested know their story, and they haven't, they don't have any new material, and they start making stuff up. <laughs> you know, uh, they, it, it turns from, you know, reporting on life to sort of creative writing on stage. <laughs> I wonder if any of that resonates with you, if any, you know, any of the interactions you've had with folks. Yeah, I, you know, I've never thought about it that way, but it's it's a great way of saying it. Um, and yeah, it would be more true for the UFO thing, because, you know, usually you have one or two experiences and you're done, you know, but it's also, I, you know, it's somewhat true with the psychedelic thing, too, because. As Alan Watts, or no, it was Huxley who said you only get so many good psychedelic experiences. You know, he advocated for like six, 12, maybe 20 across your whole life. And I certainly feel like that in my own life. You know, not that it's been quite a while, um, but even the last few years, it, you know, I'm getting the same messages. It was mostly confirmation of stuff I'd heard before. 
And I have the feeling that at some point soon, I'm going to get that message that so many of my friends have where they said, okay, I mean, hang up the phone. It's time to stop doing this. You know, it's, it's nice if you use it a little bit for something nice, but you know, you only, you get those messages and then they're there and they are somewhat ineffable. And even if they were effable, plenty of people have said them already. You know, it's, these discoveries are now out there. And they're now being monopolized and, and put in and helping to make um, guys in business suits even more sharky and uh, <laughs> better business, which, you know, isn't, you know, I know I'm not completely against that either. But it's true that there is a level of repetition that doesn't help because, you know, we're moving forward. And where this was in the 60s and the 80s and, you know, even five years ago isn't where it's going. And we have to be nimble to think about the future and try to have some input about what a reasonable relationship to psychedelics as a society we might have, because it's not going to be what we had before. And I actually don't comment much on it publicly because I don't have any good answers. I've been, you know, I've been doing the kid thing for a couple of years. I don't feel as connected. I don't think any of us feels connected because we're not seeing, we haven't seen each other at conferences uh, for the last few years, but it's also really tough stuff. I, you know, on politics, I don't have a lot of answers. I try not to just make shit up. And on exactly what psychedelics should be going, uh, you know, I'm not, I I talk a lot more about cannabis because I have a lot better idea of what makes sense there. Um, But I do not have as good an idea what makes sense in psychedelics. I think I have some ideas what I might not like to see, uh, what I might like to see, but I would not want the job of being in charge of writing the regulations. Or if I did, I'd want five years to do a whole bunch of like, you know, community input and get everybody's uh, perspective, but you're still not going to do something that makes everybody happy. So it's, it's very thorny. And uh, yeah, it's, it's not a place I feel like I have great answers. On the topic of, um, you know, once you've got the message, hang up the phone. Just this past weekend, I hadn't done LSD in many years. And uh, I went to see Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, and I had the opportunity to do so on acid. So, you know, I did. And it was strong stuff. I mean, it was very strong. It's one of those things where you take it and five minutes later, you feel it coming on rather than an hour. Wow. But, um, you know, and I went to see it in 3D and I'm in one of those reclining things in the front row and it was a total immersive experience. But there was absolutely nothing revelatory. I mean, much less spiritual or even, even interesting psychologically. It was just like... I'm watching the film. It's very intense. Uh, couldn't, I mean, I've seen a couple of reviews which then summarize the plot. So I know the plot now, but coming out of it, I had no idea what the plot was. It was just a, an onslaught and an ordeal that I had endured. But, um, you know, I had the full bladder going as the trip is really coming on. So I had to uh, navigate out of the theater into a public restroom to empty the bladder. And, and then once I'm back in the theater, you know, and I can really give myself over to it, it was a very intense experience. But in terms, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe it as remotely psychedelic. It's just there's my brain has done that so many times. It's like, okay, here's the checklist. Uh, you're in public. You're on a high dose. This is how we cope with that. And it's just automatic. And it, it sort mm-hmm. of turns off all of the things that, you know, the, the deeper revelatory parts of the psychedelic experience. That's just not on the menu when you're mm-hmm. at the movie theater in public in Arkansas. <laughs> you know? Good um, on you. Yeah. Well, no. yes and no. I mean, it was, it was an intense experience. It was, uh, it was fun. And it was fun to be there with somebody else that I'd never tripped with before. You know? So there's that sort of bonding going on. But whatever vistas LSD was going to open up for me, that was decades ago. Like mm-hmm. there's, I, I just don't believe there is any further lock that this key opens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, that might not be true of, you know, certain plant-based psychedelics, which I haven't yet experienced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that might be a new encounter and something, something novel and interesting and something to learn from. But uh, LSD, it just seems my brain and my psyche is just so familiar with it. It's just, you know, my response to it is automatic, which I think is mm-hmm. not, it's kind of the opposite of beginner's mind, you know? Hmm. Where, you, where you're putting aside all assumptions and really paying attention to the details, just dealing with an intense trip in public is the opposite of beginner's mind. <laughs> you know, it's, it's yes. falling back into very rehearsed 
patterns of, of behavior and uh, self-management. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, you get to the point where you can, you can navigate it, and so you just do. But it feels like the patterns get absorbed into you. And eventually you can't remember what it was like before those patterns. I don't remember really my thinking before I took mushrooms for the first time 20 years ago. But, you know, it's and I think it's not unique to psychedelics. I think almost anything where you dive into it deeply, such as deep reading in, in one direction or a mastery of a sport or mastery of anything. By the way, I'm doing TikToks of my favorite books in case I get hit by a bus. I want my kids to see what my favorite books are. And I just did the one for Musashi, a book of five rings, uh, the old Japanese samurai book, uh, which one of the most important things I've ever found. And him talking about how you must study hard in all of these directions, study all of the arts, study all, study all these different types of martial art, study different arts. And in those patterns, you're still, you're, you will start to see something bigger emerge. And I found that through reading science and reading literature that they start to join eventually. And yeah, this is what the flow is going to be. And the psychedelics helped a lot with that too. But they were just one tool out of seeing a different flow. And once you got the idea on that flow, you know, you know, you got it. You, you can keep reading. You, if you've read all the Jane Austen, you got it. You can keep reading it for the fun of it and get in deeper. But at some point, you've had those patterns have been absorbed all the way, and now you're looking for new patterns. I think. You're listening to the Signal Podcast. Your mind, one week at a time. Well, let's let's get back to uh, you talking to other people on a podcast. Uh, is the podcast about psychedelics in particular, or is it a, a broader umbrella of topics that you're dealing with? Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not psychedelics particular. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoy talking to my old friends in that. And whenever I see new people come across, it seems to have something interesting to say. I always set up an interview with them, but in that world, you know, it's, I, for me, I've been in that world so long that it, you know, it's not quite as interesting. Uh, you don't hear as much new material anymore. Um, it's why I miss the conferences. Cause that's when you really do find new material. So direction has more been helping people with mental health or physical health kind of activities and in ways that I'm not used to. Um, so whenever I, I come across a new practice and learn about it from somebody, that's someone I try to sit down and interview. And then the, the super normal as well. Uh, the last part of it was a lot of, of physicists and uh, scientists who have been looking at this and trying to figure out frameworks or people who are just out there collecting the, the data as well. And that one is really rich for me because that's when where I'm still learning. And you know, for everybody, I'm, I'm curious in what they have to say. But when the topic is brand new, like the supernormal, uh, I've only been reading about it for like a year or two. It just makes it really easy to get excited. And then I have to read their books. I mean, part of the reason I do a podcast is because then I have to go through and read their books to get all the questions for it and it forces me to just pound through so many books that otherwise I might not take the time to read. And that's, that's such a joy to be able to to learn that way. Um, you know, for me, I, I, I don't listen to many podcasts, I actually listen, to no podcasts pretty much. Um, <laughs> I, I, and you, and I've heard that people who produce podcasts often don't listen to them. But what I do is read, I feel like listening to someone for an hour is nice. And you kind of get a, a bare bones of what they're trying to say. And if that's all you care about the topic, an hour is enough. But if you really care, you read a book on the topic. And uh, I once heard somebody say that if you've read eight books, on a on any kind of fairly narrow topic, you know, about as much as most anyone in the world does on that topic. You know, even if you read eight books on US drug policy in the 20th century, and they were decent ones, you would know more than almost anybody out there on that subject. And that's what I like about books. They're just so dense for the the ROI, if you can put it in that uh, way of looking at it. But hey, I do, you know, I only have I only have so many years left. And yeah, I'm trying to, to pound in my German way. I'm trying to pound through as much information and figuring stuff out as I can before I uh, die. And I assume just do this again. You know, I, I don't read many books these days. And when I do, it's usually it comes at the end of a sort of um, uh, a process of like, if there's a book I'm interested in, first, I'll go and listen to a couple interviews with the author. And sometimes listening to the author in, you know, give a talk or a, a long form interview, that's enough. 
Um, yeah. But if I really enjoyed it and if, you know, every time I hear something new from this author, they're not just repeating, but you know, they've got, if I, I can tell they have a wealth of material that they're picking and choosing from in their various interviews, rather than a short rap that they're repeating over and over again, <laughs> then I'll probably get the audiobook and I'll listen to the audiobook. And if in listening to the audiobook, you know, I think, oh, I'm, there's a bunch of stuff I'd really, if I were reading it, I'd be taking notes or I'd be making highlights, then, you know, then I'll get the book. But by the time I get the book uh, and I start reading it, the material is already very familiar. And, uh, you know, I, I find that that's when I really get into a topic. But rarely does any book actually make it, you know, through all those stages to the point where I actually have the physical book in my hand and I'm reading it. It just doesn't happen very often. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a smart way to dive in, I think. Uh, what did Melville say? Lord, keep me from ever completing an erection. Uh, he means a building, but like, you know, you're never going to finish any of your research in any of your topics. And all you can do is just keep pushing the ball forward. So, okay, this, this, this direction. Yeah, I'm going to do this much, but I think it makes sense as a way to, to explore. It's really an art to try to figure out who and what to read and how much time to invest. And, you know, you're never quite feel like you're doing it right or doing it justice, but uh, that's life. And then when it comes time to read, the question is, uh, Kindle or paper book? And I move around so often and books are so heavy and I have just boxes and boxes of them. And I, I know I'm, it's very unlikely that I'm actually going to go dig through all those boxes to find a particular book, you know, whereas the Kindle, it weighs nothing. Uh, I can find stuff in an instant, but uh, I've, I've read and my own experience bears out that you do remember more when you're reading from a page than you do when you're reading from a screen. Yeah, I found it to be true, and that's why I generally go with paper books. Um, for these, for the super normal research I'm doing now, I'm doing Kindle because I often can't find the books here in France, and also I know I'm going to be going back to them a bunch of times and just cop and needing to to use the research. So I'm just highlighting the passages that I'm going to use mm -hmm. uh, in my writing, and so for that it makes sense. But for the stuff that I'm reading for personal interest, and I, I got a whole bunch of books on the floor here because my bookshelves aren't in. And I actually have, I inherited a library from a dear friend who passed. Um, mm -hmm. So I have uh, 67 books of boxes of books in the basement of this beautiful, beautiful library. And it's nice to have old Buck Platic, you know, sometimes I'll just be like, I should open this box tonight. I'd open the box and there's just the book that I need right now. And I can hear old Buck, you know, kind of chuckle over his shoulder and I can find his notes in it. It's really a beautiful thing. And it's, that's why it's part of the reason it's fun for me to read paper books is my method that I learned in my 20s. The best way f for me to read a book is as I, the first thing I do as soon as I buy it is I write in the back cover uh, so it's unobtrusive in case, you know, it's just, I die and it goes to a bookstore. I don't want to mess up someone else's reading experience. But I use the back cover and I write where I got it, where I was when I started reading it. And then I, all the notes I make, I make in the back of the book. I might put a, a little line on the page just so I know what passage I'm referring to, but I write my ideas and the quotes and, and I have a little sim symbolism system for some of my stuff. And I just fill up the back with my notes and it makes it really easy to come back years later and look at the stuff that you thought was really important. And I hide little jokes in there and things are going on in my life and stuff like that in the hopes that, you know, one of these kids that I got or somebody someday might go through these and think it's kind of fun because my dad always says to me, he's like, I do all these notes and I do all this stuff. And I know that you're going to be the only person who looks at these before this stuff goes into the trash. So, you know, I, I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> and, you know, maybe not, no one will ever look at any of this stuff, but it's fun for me to do it. And it, most importantly, for my memory, it, it helps to physically write it out. And for the way my, my brain works, seeing my notes on the page helps. Oh, you got it in your hand. Yeah, I think, and I think that's true for a lot of people. The motion of the writing helps get it into your head. Yeah. You know the uh, science fiction author Neil Stevenson? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, his last few books he has written longhand on, I think, legal pads. Wow. And he says he prefers that method because it's slower than typing, so that the sentences have to stay in the buffer longer, you know, while he's getting them down onto the page. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, what I just saw a video of a guy, um, it was a, a well-known director, I can't remember who now, but his method was he would write out his entire screenplay and you know he would write too much and be 120 pages and he'd put it away in a drawer for half a year or a year. 
and then he would get it out again, read through the whole thing, and then throw it right in the trash, and then write it, <laughs> and then write it out again. And that's when he got the the gold of what was really in there, and none of the dross. And I thought that system made a lot of sense. Yeah, I had a philosophy professor who used to suggest, you know, that you write your paper, and then when you go to revise it, don't don't edit that file. Start a new file and write it again. And mm -hmm. uh, I never did when I was in his classes. But, you know, now, decades later, looking back on that advice, I see the value in it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in college, yeah. you know, I wanted to party, so I, <laughs> I wasn't going to write a paper twice. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Not, probably not worth the effort. <sighs> you know, I'm familiar with the term supernatural and the term paranormal, but I guess I've been out of stuff for too long. I, I don't ever recall having heard people use the phrase supernormal. Yeah, and I, I, I always hesitate to use it because it's not well known, and it's not like, and it's it. Um, I only got it from Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, who I forget who he got it from, but it's not the most widely used term. But to me, it seems like the most accurate because uh, supernatural, as he says, it does isn't really something that exists. There is nothing that's supernatural. Everything that you're going to interact with is of a natural origin somehow. And paranormal also doesn't, you know, what's what's not normal. It's um, so the idea of supernormal being something that just happens very rarely makes a, a lot more sense to me. But, you know, I don't love using it because it's not meaty. People don't know what you're, you're talking about. But, you know, I'll just, but I'm still grappling with this. You know, this is the one I'm, this is a subject matter I'm still getting my head around. So I don't really talk about it too much publicly, um, though I'm happy to, it's just no one really asks or is that interested. It's such a, it's such a willful blind spot in in human affairs. I'm like, you know, I was a scientist. I didn't particularly care one way or the other about it. I'm like, oh my God, this is all, this isn't like, oh, this might be true. It's like, no, this is by any measure of scientific data, almost all of this stuff is well proven, especially UFOs. Uh, if, if anyone out there doesn't believe it, I mean, Leslie Keenan's uh, book, uh, she's a journalist who just collected a bunch of military accounts. And, you know, if you don't believe all of this radar and military data um, by these you know, people trained to look at stuff, you know, you're, well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't seem very rational, but there's been such a misinformation campaign. And I know there's a lot of reasons people don't want to, or don't, or just don't care. You know, it's also how much does this affect your, your daily life? I'm not sure why I got obsessed with it, except that it's finally something mysterious again. And it might even hint at all my like fantasy visions when I was young that I would always hope that a portal would just open in the wall and a, and a beautiful young woman would, would hop out with a sword and be like, we need someone with a deep knowledge of science fiction to come and save our planet right now. <laughs> yes, I and, want that too. <laughs> so, and now I'm starting to believe that there's more magic and, 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 strange things in the world that maybe what I believed when I was young is a little bit more close to the truth than I believe. And, uh, you know, that's kind of hopeful. I'm not expecting much, but if I just get to sit and read books about this for the rest of my life and never have anything particularly super normal happen to me, that's completely fine. Reading everyone else's story about it is very satisfying. You know, there are supposedly, I haven't tried them. Uh, I'm, I practice meditation daily, but it's a very, you know, I'm, I'm definitely taking advantage of the 80-20 rule where, you know, your first your first little bit of effort is going to yield the most results, and then thereafter you're chasing diminishing returns. But it's just very, very basic, run-of-the-mill, you know, just mindfulness stuff. But there are meditations that are specific to inviting uh, encounters with non-human intelligence, you know, be it aliens or spirits or, or what have you. And I've, I don't do them, but I've thought about doing them. And I'm conflicted because... You know, I'm I'm curious. I'm curious enough to have been to the Amazon, you know, four different times to drink ayahuasca and never really had that that super satisfying encounter that I was hoping for. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, the rational part of me says, well, you know, if you do that, you're basically just hypnotizing yourself and, and programming yourself to have a an experience which is not particularly informed by reality. You know, you're just you're just programming yourself to, to have this waking dream in which you think you've encountered some other mind, but it's just you. Uh, so that's, that's a source of sort of unresolved tension for me. Like, do I court the encounter or do I just sit around and wait for it, secure in the knowledge that it may never come? Hmm. Yeah, it's a conundrum. Um, and I can't answer for anyone else, but for myself, I am very purposely not doing 
any of that yet because I don't feel ready. Um, I know that Crowley said that you shouldn't start practicing magic until you have a PhD level knowledge in eight different fields and know your own have pushed your body physically to all of these different limits know your mind very intimately through meditation already and i don't have any of those things um and i also i kind of subscribe to something that helps me is that those ages where the numbers match up are your special ages and so at 33 was it was a big year for me and i kind of put in my head 44 was going to be the year that i would start i would try to be a a, a magus, someone who's practicing this stuff, but that's still four years away for me. And <laughs> it, it gives me some time, especially as I started diving into reading the history of folklore. And if anyone else is interested, uh, the dictionary of folklore by, by uh, Catherine Briggs is just really a beautiful collection. And I think it's necessary for anyone who cares about the UFO phenomena. You have to see the history of where this is coming from. Um, if you're into this, you probably know about Jacques Vallée and his book, um, Passport to Mangonia, where he talks about the history of folklore and how that bleeds into the UFO thing, which makes a lot of sense that, you know, these, these things that are perhaps super dimensional to what we are, they're not from other worlds or from other dimensions, whatever that means, um, they present as whatever our brain can handle. And that's angels in one culture, it's spinning wheels in another culture, it's Buddha in another culture, you know, whatever. And the, when you look at the history of folklore, it is so informative, I think, to all of this work because the, the good neighbors, uh, as the safest way to refer to them is, are often not at all friendly folks. Uh, they are not people you should be putting yourself into any kind of debt to. You shouldn't even say thank you to them. They will either harm you for that, use that to their advantage, or disappear if they were helpful brownie-type creatures. But there is... In, in the beginning, I was reading about, about, about good neighbors, fairies. I was excited, like, oh, maybe, you know. And then I started to read more into it. I'm like, no, this is dangerous stuff. Anyone who, you know, just like getting involved with the gods. If you were a human and got involved with the Greek gods, you almost certainly had your life ruined. Once in a while, it helped you out. But mostly um, for women, it was always terrible and a curse. Uh, for men, it usually was. And there, as H.P. As Lovecraft said, you should not call up what you cannot put down. And so in my, I feel like for myself, I am very, very much in research mode and trying to avoid any kind of attention from any other, from this kind of stuff. So I, yeah, I'm just in study mode. And we have, an inter, we have a nice comment here from Parker, I just see on the side, who says there's so much non-human intelligence on Earth, other mammals and birds, many societies of creatures. And I think that's a really beautiful way of looking at it. As a scientist, I love reading about sociobiology and how groups of animals work together. I think E.O. Wilson's textbook on that is still worth just reading through for anybody. And looking at the, how the whole planet operates as one giant organism, there's so much to learn from the patterns of how other intelligent animals, slime molds, plants handle things even in my in my front yard here the when we moved in the the garden hadn't been touched for five years and there is a vine that took over everything and so i had to spend a month battling this vine pulling it up everywhere in the beginning i was annoyed i was fighting it and then one day i was just high enough i was out there working and i realized that this thing is so smart if i was a vine trying to figure out the best way to take over this garden for my own benefit. I could never have designed such a good system of how it laid its roots, all the different directions it went, where it climbed, how it did it. Like this thing is so much smarter than I am in many ways. So I did pull the vine back very far, but I left it in the corner of the yard. So there's still some of it there. So because I'm, now I'm happy to have it and think about its intelligence. Already it's starting to, to climb all over everything so quickly. Uh, <laughs> it's just such a highly evolved being. And so I think for all of this kind of stuff, as much reading and research into the patterns of everything in the natural world is going to be the most informative. As, as the early Christians said, half the knowledge is in their holy book, the Bible. Um, excuse me. Um, and the other half of knowledge is in the natural world itself. And that's a place that you can really learn a lot from. On the Sea Realm podcast, a mind that is stretched by a new experience can never go back, never go back never to go its back, old dimensions. Back. 
All right, we've come to the end. It's not the end of the conversation with Lex Pelger. That will conclude in the next episode of the Sea Realm Vault podcast. That is a paywalled podcast for the serious Sea Realm diehards who have my thanks for their ongoing support. And if you enjoy this free podcast, they should have your thanks as well. All right. Now, I have still not listened to a single episode of Lex's podcast, although I definitely plan to remedy that soon. And I'm going to start with his conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Kripal. And I hope I'm pronouncing that last name correctly. If you've listened to this podcast for years, and uh, I don't think there are many new listeners coming in these days, so if you're listening to this episode, you've probably listened to many others. You also probably know that um, while I have dabbled with what Lex is here calling the supernormal, you know, with multiple trips to South America to participate in ayahuasca rituals and whatnot, I'm most comfortable dwelling in the world of physical objects. I describe myself as an agnostic, metaphysically speaking, but I think a lot of people who are more inclined to, you know, the esoteric would describe my position pejoratively, as reductive materialist. And, you know, while I say that it would be a pejorative, it's also pretty accurate. Not in terms of any, you know, absolute conviction that I have about how the universe works, just as far as I can tell, looking around, that seems to be the universe that we live in. Except, every now and again, once in a blue moon, once in a month of Sundays, something weird pops up that makes it seem like the world is more esoteric and strange than I had previously imagined. Which, that's not even true, really, because there have been many times in the past when the world has seemed much more magical, surreal, directed by intelligence and imagination than it seems most of the time to me now. And thinking back on the, the final portion of the conversation that you heard with Lex about non-human intelligences, I had never heard this before, but it makes sense. Don't put yourself in debt to them. Don't even say thank you. Or as H.P. Lovecraft put it, and Lex quoted in the podcast you just heard, you should not call up what you can't put down. And it is for that reason, I just call it an abundance of caution, that I'm going to continue to operate, at least in the near term, as if we lived in a physical universe in which the only complex intelligences that have language and technology and culture is human intelligence. I know that's definitely a buzzkill of a position to take. And it may come back to bite me in the ass someday. But calling up that which you can't put down, also not a good idea. All right, as I say, the conversation with Lex will conclude on the next episode of the Sea Realm Vault podcast, which I hope to get up onto the web tomorrow. That little walled garden portion of the web where episodes of the Sea Realm Vault podcast are to be found. All right. Thanks so much for listening. I will talk to you again soon. Stay well.